Good morning. Our scripture today is Judges 13, 3 through 5, and Judges 14, 1 through 9. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And 14, 1 through 9. Samson went down to to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon, uh, rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Audrey. Well, my name is Ben. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I'm the associate pastor here while uh, our senior pastor, Matt, is away. I get to take a chance at uh, jumping in on our sermon series here during the season of Lent. So if you would, uh, if you find it in the bulletin there or in, in the uh, in a Bible in front of you, we are going to turn our attention to this pretty bizarre story. But first, we need to hear a word from one of the great sages of our, uh, of our world, the sage Tom Haverford and Donna Meagle from the show Parks and Rec. As they de- contemplated the human condition, they, uh, I, you, if you can't tell, I'm joking. This is a, a comedy show, but in it, Uh, This is their description of how that they are going to get through life. This is their profound articulation on the human condition, and it is this. Treat yourself. Not treat yourself. Treat yourself, right? Uh, If you are familiar with this show, it's a comedy that is based on this fictional small town that has this parks and rec department. And in it, there's these two co-workers Tom and Donna, who share very little of uh, shared interests or desires for life, except they have a shared desire to live life large. They desire to to find themselves a a way to gratify the instincts of their natures, to to whet their appetites on the finest of things that can be found in Pawnee, Indiana. And so uh, in this episode that instantly became a classic they, uh, they set apart one day a year, October 13th, 
every year, they, the two of them would get together and they would go to the fanciest place that they could imagine, the Plaza, uh, the Plaza Mall in Eagleton. And they would go into this beautiful land and they would set whatever their eyes saw, whatever was beautiful or captivating to them, they would partake of. Clothes, treat yourself. Fragrances, treat yourself. Massages, mimosas, fine leather goods, treat yourself. Right? That is uh, the best day of the year, they said. Because it was the day when they could push aside all of their problems, when they could forget the, the begrudging world and the work that they had to do, and they could fill up on whatever they wanted. The funny part, though, is, is that while it was created to be this sort of farce, it actually was a slogan that, that caught on. Now, one of the writers... Uh, a few years later, Alan Yang is his name, uh, he, he said, I had to go back and apologize to those actors because I just thought I was creating something kind of funny and, and developing these characters, but people latched on so deeply to this mantra, treat yourself, treat yourself, that everywhere these actors, they leave their house and it was like 10 times a day, someone's yelling at them from across the street, treat yourself, right? They post something on social media and instantly all their comments are just, treat yourself, treat yourself, treat yourself. The people saw in this something that captured their imagination. And it's not hard to see what, it's hard, it's not hard to see why, right? Isn't that the way that we normally uh, attend to the things that are hard in our lives, isn't that normally the first prescription that we write for ourselves? Are you stressed? Are you tired? You need a vacation. You need to vacate, get away from the, the stresses of this life. Do you find yourself with extra time or extra money? Well, goodness, what are you going to spend it on? How are you going to treat yourself uh, to some new form of recreation or, or some new hobby? We just assume that our life in its day-to-day -day moments is meant to be the pursuit of happiness. And that pursuit is primarily to be lived out by attending to our desires. In fact, in that show, the reason that they, uh, the whole premise of the show is that there is uh, one of their colleagues named Ben Wyatt who is, is going through a really hard time, and they say he just needs a day off. He's going to snap like a skinny little rubber band if he doesn't. But what about if that prescription we write for ourselves? What about if our desire to, to see and to want, to, to want and to claim is not something that actually heals our stress but mounts it? What if the, 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 the empty... What if the, the promise of satisfaction, the promise of getting away, the promise of fulfilling your appetite doesn't lead you to an open road but to a dead end? What if rather than health, it leads you towards patterns of self-destruction? If you've been with us over the last several weeks, we have been uh, walking through in Lent uh, various aspects of our lives that we often let go un, uh, unchallenged or unreflected upon, the habits of our life that lead us away from the path of life and goodness that God gives us. 
And so today we're going to take a look at this concept, the concept of self-indulgence. And like the title of the sermon says, our desire is that we can say, I repent of my self-indulgence. But if we're going to repent, we need two things. First, we need to know what, what it is that we're turning away from. And second, we need to figure out what it is that we're turning towards. What are we turning away from? And then what are we turning towards? Well, we're turning away from self-indulgence, if I haven't said that five times already. And to do this, we're going to take a look at this story of Samson, who is perhaps one of the most bizarre characters in the Bible. And we find Samson in this really strange place in life, a really admittedly tough place. You see, Samson grew up in occupied land. The tribes of the Philistines had conquered his little portion of Israel, and so he lived the life of an occupied territory. Every time he went somewhere, there was a fear of, of armed uh, raiding parties that might swoop in at any moment. When he left his mother at home, he worried if she would be there when he came back. He lived a life that was filled with fear and a lot of control. Right? He grew up under the shadow of incredibly uh, lofty expectations. Did you guys hear that first little bit from Judges 13? And, well, first of all, let's just say an angel shows up to his mother to announce that he's about to be born. If that doesn't raise expectations, I don't know exactly what does. But listen to what the angel says. He says, and he, Samson, shall begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Can you imagine being a child growing up into adolescence and into adulthood, hearing that kind of expectation on yourself? He grew up being conformed into a very distinct pattern of life. There in the text, it says that he was to be raised as a, as a Nazarite, right? These are people who live very, with a very distinct set of habits, a very distinct set of, of rules, a very distinct lifestyle. They were never to cut their hair they were never to eat, uh, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, they were never to touch a dead body of, of animal or human. They were never to drink wine or any fruit uh, from the vine. And so he grew up, I presume, feeling a little bit different than everyone around him in the world. He grew up, and maybe some of, the, some of you will resonate with this, with a father who this text continuously portrays as one with a, a desire for control a desire to dominate over his son. Oh, and there's this unique fact that he grew up with superhuman strength. You know, how he just tears open a lion like one tears open a young goat. You know how you tear open a young goat every day, right? But he is this place and this person that is characterized to us as living his life and entering his adolescence and his adulthood under the harshest of spotlights that we can imagine. Where his every move and, every, and his every word is watched and cared for because the people who are around him desperately need his strength. They desperately need him to bring salvation. And so what does he do under such pressure? What does he, uh, how does he live with such uh, lofty expectations on him? He lives a life filled with self-indulgence. The text goes from chapter 13 where it lays out this, 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 this really unique uh, birth story, the kind of birth story that's only told of like the patriarchs, the most revered 
people in their society or of the prophets that, that fundamentally shaped this arc of the story of human history. And yet the writer of Judges introduces us to the man, Samson, with a threefold hit. He goes after a wife, but not just like uh, in a normal way. He goes after a wife by going and looking at all the women foreign or near around him, and he finds the most attractive one, the one he thinks will satisfy his sexual desires the most, and he says, that is the one that is good in my eyes. Get her for me, Father. Right? He goes, um, and, and the, the story we just read, he finds honey that is, is sweet to his taste, and uh, while he's on a journey, and while he's not supposed to touch a dead body, it does not matter, because he saw what he wanted, and what he wanted was that honey, and so he took it. We didn't, I didn't put all of this in the, uh, the text. I didn't want Audrey stuck reading for a whole hour. But the story, the next story that comes up in this sequence is, is that Samson goes and he finds an opportunity to kind of scam uh, a, a bunch of Philistines out of a small fortune. And so he sees the opportunity for money, for a fortune, and he grabs it. This may be a little different story than Samson, than the one you, uh, if you grew up in the church, and it was in your children's Bible. But the author is intentionally telling us God has given Samson this great privilege and given Samson this great role, and he's given Samson this great task. But Samson has oriented his life, at least the way that this storyteller tells his life. He has oriented his desires, and he has oriented his work, and he has oriented his, his strength on obtaining what he wants, on self-indulgence, on finding the sex that he wants, finding the food that he wants, finding the money that he wants. And maybe for some of it, for us, uh, this doesn't actually sound that strange. We kind of go, yeah, that, that sounds like a human being <laughs> trying to cope with the world. Because we just assume that the way you cope with the world is by finding something that delights your eye and, and grabbing hold of it. To use a silly example, it's, you know, like, how do, we, how do we even define ourselves? Like, when you meet somebody new and you go to some work training or some awkward small group at church, right, and they play this some silly get-to-know-you game, what do they ask you? They ask, what's your favorite way to eat a potato, Right? They say, how is it that if you're going to, if you could have the potato in the most unhealthy way possible, how is it that you would gratify yourself? How is it that you would indulge? Now, what's your favorite kind of vacation? Are you a mountain vacation person or are you a beach vacation person? Right? Our very, the very way that we assume human nature works is that what is unique about you, what is special about you is your unique desires that you can consume, the unique appetites that you can obtain for yourself. But the author of Judges thinks that Samson's self-indulgences are not normal at all. In fact, his, what he's doing as he portrays Samson in this way is he is saying that Samson is doing his indulgences not because he is a normal human, although that is partially true, but because he's doing the normal human thing of trying to hide from God. He's trying to hide from God. You see, most, uh, Samson does not reject God. He doesn't go after some idol. He doesn't declare himself to be a, a Philistine. But what he does is in the 
hours that make up his days and in the days that make up his life, he orients himself around pursuing pleasure. He orients himself around finding uh, indulgence. And that is enough, hour by hour, day after day, week after week, to postpone, to push away this notion that he belongs to God and that he is to be the deliverer of his people. But isn't that kind of the way we'd live too? The idea of living in this world is a really hard thing. The jobs that you work, the relationships that you are called to to steward, the people that you have to love, the neighbors and the the poverty that surrounds us, to live life as, as God has designed it to live is overwhelming and it is stressful. And so like students who are cramming for a test or preachers who are trying to write a a sermon, right? We we go to write and then we're like, well, let me just do the wordle real quick. Give myself a little kick of of accomplishing something. Uh, Okay, we finished that. Let me do the the quordle after that. All right, well, I still have a little bit of time. Why don't I do the octordle? You know, we're pushing it off day after day, not by doing some gross sin, the, the sins that there there is sin in what Samson does, but the text's point is not that he is sinning, but that he is chasing after something that will not satisfy him, that he is chasing after that which his eyes desire, that he is living life on his own terms. Because why would you wrestle with the dark night of the soul if you can take a sleeping pill to make it go Away. Why wait with eager anticipation for the Son of God to be revealed when you can get a kick of endorphins just by watching another hour of TV? Because we deal with the struggles of this life the way that Samson dealt with the struggles in his. We see what we want, and we go, and we take it. And for the few minutes, it makes us feel just a little bit better. But God has something else in mind for us. And we know it already. Even if you're not a a church person, even if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that if you live your life, orient your life around pursuing the next thing, about filling up your your stomach with the, the food that makes you most happy, you know that you will end up in obesity and, and diabetes, right? And so we live, we orient our culture around, we have this whole thing called diet culture where we deprive ourselves of, of the indulgences that we want so that make us better. We know that if you, uh, if you live your life just chasing the endorphins of, of self-indulgence uh, that you will end up addicted we we'll know that you'll end up in, in a place of poverty. We know that you will end up in a very bad place. And so we live in a world that says, no, we need to treat our self-indulgence with self-denial or at least self-moderation. In the church, maybe some of you grew up thinking that, that, uh, that, all, you know, that all of these rich and beautiful things in the world were, were bad, things like uh, maybe you were taught that, that, that alcohol was inherently bad. Maybe you were taught that sex was inherently dirty and gross and should be hidden from view. Maybe you were taught that spending money on vacation was a waste of your resources. 
because that is what we, the instinctual habit is to try to turn from self-indulgence to self-control, to self-denial, to self-moderation. But maybe if we find ourselves constantly medicating ourselves because of our own expectations, or maybe if we spend our whole life loathing ourselves because we're not able to moderate ourselves, maybe the problem is that we need to get rid of ourselves. Maybe the problem is not that you need self, uh, to self-police yourself. Maybe it's time that you stop listening to yourself and start entrusting your life to someone else. Because the opposite of self-indulgence is not self-denial. The opposite of self-indulgence is not moderation. The opposite of self-indulgence is to belong to someone else. And that someone else is God. So we turn from self-indulgence because it is a bankrupt way of living your life. It will lead you to no satisfaction, and it will lead you to no good. And we turn towards finding ourselves belonging to God. Look at Samson. The text, when we look at chapter 13 versus chapter 14, we see these very different pictures of the way that Samson's life could be. And, you know, in 21st century America, we are not prone to read his invitation to the Nazarite life as being a positive one, right? To have a bunch of rules, like no cutting, no haircuts, no wine, uh, no touching dead bodies. I'm not sure anyone really wants that, but, you know, it's still an extra rule that's placed upon him. And that sounds like just drudgery. It sounds horrible. It sounds arbitrary. It sounds controlling, but for the ancient Israelites, from when, the, when the, the, the text tells us of, of the Nazarite vows in number six, what it is, it's portrayed as this beautiful thing. A beautiful thing where someone for some section of their life, or in Samson's case, his whole life, they are invited to live their life with a hyper-heightened awareness that they belong to God. That they could live life where not just that they are... Um, that they belong to God in a, in a general sense, but that their bodies, their very physical bodies, would belong to God in such a way that their, their, their human life could be used as an extension of God's hand in the world. When a Nazarite finished with his vows, he would cut off his hair, and he would take his, that portion of his body, and he would lay it on the altar as an offering to God, because the Nazarite life was a life where he knew he belonged to God, where his life was not spent trying to get through the day, but his life was spent being a part of God's world. And so those rules became reminders that his life was a unique gift to the world, and those rules became reminders that he was to be used by God, to, be, to embody God's truth and justice and beauty in the world. What Samson turned away from is what we need to turn back to. What Samson turned away from is, what, is where we can find hope. When we read the scriptures and we talk about Jesus, and we'll say things like, Jesus uh, came for you, or Jesus came to forgive your sins. We say, Jesus came to give you life. Part of what that means is it means that God knows that you are a person, like I am a person who habitually looks for something 
in, in created order to make me feel good, to make me feel like life is going to be okay, to get some surge of endorphins. And part of what that means is that Jesus forgives me for turning away from him. But he also invites me to live a life in his presence, to live life in his belongings. You see, Jesus didn't just come to forgive you and leave you. He came to reclaim you as part of his body, to reclaim you as part of his life. Jesus came to infuse our lives with purpose and with meaning. So even the recreation we do can be lived as a member of God, as one who belongs to his kingdom. Right now, I imagine if you're sitting here, you're going, okay, now wait a second. So we've, we've talked about like vacations, we've talked about wine, we've talked about um, all of these things, right? That, that like, I've read the Bible enough, I know that Jesus drank wine, okay? So you can't be telling me that, that to indulge in these things is wrong, right? I, I follow your Instagram account, preacher. I know that you were just on vacation last week, what are you doing? You're, you're intuiting that, that, that to indulge in these things is wrong. But what I want us to see here, and I'm gonna take a, we're going to take a look at, at a passage from 1 Timothy, is that there's two ways of indulging in the world. There's the, the self-indulgement, and there's the indulging in a gift. There's a kind of indulging that where you take a hold of something for yourself to use it and to abuse it, to make it fit your needs, and one where you are given something by your Father in heaven to treasure, to see him more clearly, to know his world more accurately. Because if you are to belong to God, then that means that you belong to the world that God made for you. Listen to the way uh, the Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy. He's, in this passage, Paul is lambasting these, uh, these other teachers, people who forbid marriage and who require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Paul says the reason that it's not okay for them to, to, to create this self-denial paradigm is because everything is created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. You notice the shift? You notice the shift is, it is not, hey, God, there's lots of good and beautiful things in the world. Go out and seize it. Go and take it. Go make yourself feel good. What it is, is it says God has made a world that is beautiful, and there's lots of beautiful, good things in it, and it is given to you as a gift, that it might return you back to him in thanksgiving and prayer. It may be exactly the same, uh, the same food. It may be exactly the same vacation. It may be exactly the same uh, act of, of, of sex. One is to use to serve yourself. The other will draw you back to God. So how do we tell the difference? When you partake of that which is sweet, when you indulge in that which is, is the finest affair in your world, that which meets your appetites, are you, does it draw you back to God? Does it draw you into a life of thanksgiving? Does it draw you into a life of praise? Or does it lead you to just wanting more and more of that stuff? 
right? So if we took alcohol as an example, right? Um, and, uh, and you said, oh, well, okay, so the Bible seems to say that, uh, that alcohol is a good thing. That's from Jesus all, all the way through. It tells us that alcohol is a good thing. And yet, the Bible also seems to say that drunkenness is not a good thing, right? It's the same act. It's the same wine. It's the same drink. What is going on there? Well, when you're drunk, you don't. You don't give thanks to God. When you're drunk, you are not, uh, you are not being invited into a life of fellowship and into a life of, of relationship with others. When you are drunk, you are trying to, you are alone and you are alienated from the world because your mental faculties aren't there anymore. But there is a way to drink that same wine with thanksgiving to God, and that draws you back into community with him and with his people. There is something good and sweet that is not to be rejected if it is given and received with thanksgiving. The same vacation that you could plan and you could go on. You could plan it because you're like, I just need to get away from all these people and all this hard stuff going on in my life. Because I want to avoid thinking about what God the life that God has called me to live, or you can go on that same vacation and be drawn into to seeing the scope, wider scope of God's world, to be filled with thanksgiving over the relationships and the rest that he provides for his people. It's the same thing. But are you doing it as one who belongs to God, or are you doing it as one who is trying to satisfy yourself? I remember uh, when I was in high school, I uh, was a very mediocre athlete, um, as you can probably tell by my physical form. But I played, I, I, I hung in there all the way through, and so I I'd played varsity basketball my junior year, and my senior year was coming up. And something started going in my mind, me and, and my buddy uh, Bobby, who had the locker next to me, said, you know, we've spent a lot of hours on this basketball court being a part of a team that we never get to play, right? We're like 10th to 14th on the, on the, the bench, right? And we have a bunch of really good juniors that are coming up onto the varsity team this year who are going to push us even farther down the line. And we said, do we really want to spend three hours a day running wind sprints and running drills and being yelled at? Do we really want to go through uh, two-a-day practices at the start of the year? Or maybe we should just quit. It's our senior year. Let's have fun, right? So, we, so Bobby and I decided we're going we're gonna to leave uh, our role as bench warmers on the varsity basketball team, and we are going to go become the all-stars of the intramural league at Metamora Township High School. And we're going to be the all-stars. And I said, uh, the, the, the point is this. You can be your own coach. It was our team to do what we wanted with the team. We could practice if we wanted to practice. We could not practice if we wanted to. It was the same game. We still got to go and play basketball and have fun, but we, and nobody cared whether we turned the ball over or whether we tried an ill-conceived alley-oop, right? We could do what we wanted to do, and it seemed perfect. And it seemed great until we went out on the court and realized that nobody cared, 
And almost like the, like the prodigal son, we return and we go. Uh, our, our, of course, our varsity coach wanted, it was not going to entertain this. We went, to the, we went to the varsity girls coach. And we're like, please, please, will you let us just come be your scrimmage players at practice? We want so badly to be a part of a, a, of a, of a team. We want so badly to, to put the name of our school, a, a jersey that has the name of our school across our chest. We want so badly to play basketball with players who are good and who care about good basketball. We'll run the sprints. We'll fill your water bottles. We'll do whatever you want us to do. Just let us be a part of the team. It's the same game that was played in intramurals and on the school team. But on in the intramurals, you were just out there for kicks and giggles. People would make plays just to get a laugh out of their teammates. But on the team, what we did mattered. We were part of something that was bigger than ourselves. God has invited us to join with him in our creation, and it is playful, and it is fun, and it is good, and it is beautiful. But he has not invited us to go out there living life on our terms. We think that we're doing best, that life will be most fun when we can indulge on creation on our own terms and when we can be our own coach. But what is really good, what will really bring delight is when we live and and engage in his world as those who have his name written across our chest. When we belong to him and belong to his people and we can enjoy the world that he has made us in a way that brings us back to him. Because we belong to Christ. And that is the very best place the very, very best place for us to live in his world. Pray with me. God, we thank you that you are a God who has not left us to our own devices and desires, that you are a God who has invited us to enter into your world, not to hide from it, not to avoid it, but to engage it as those who are your beloved daughters and sons. Father, give us your vision for life. Give us your vision for hope and healing. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.